You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. I would like to introduce Dr. Pig Bodine, a fellow traveler on the Information Superhighway, an appreciator of the Hold Steady, and a resident Alan Moore expert, and he's here to help me explore some of Alan Moore's lesser works. Not lesser works, some of Alan Moore's works. <laughs> you can find you can find Dr. Pig Bodine on the on Twitter using the Twitter handle at pussy underscore teeth. How are you doing today? I'm I'm living the dream, man. Um, it's uh it's three underscores, by the way. I, I used to oh, have one that, and then I, see. I got shadow banned and then it was two and then shadow banned <laughs> and then now I'm on three. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, it's so stupid, like I've gone through several Twitter accounts and the one that happens to get semi big is one associate like with a such a stupid name. Like, <laughs> like I can't I love it. And honestly, I mean, Jimmy's a great, you know, it's friendly, it's accessible, mm-hmm. you know. I'm either pig or pussy teeth. And like, <laughs> <laughs> so Jimmy's definitely uh, better in that front. That's true. It could always be better or worse. <laughs> true. All right. So we are here today to talk about the man, the, the magician, Alan Moore. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, I saw somebody say that he was probably the most famous magician alive, uh, and I think that that's, I couldn't think of one that's, you know, I mean, more you'd have to basically imagine certain politicians or, uh, you know, billionaires, like, he's certainly the most famous openly practicing, like, out right. in the public, Right. Yeah, that's true. There's, I mean, if we read uh, Transformation of America, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might be some others, but uh, but yeah, um, Alan Moore's, uh, I think, probably one of the greatest living writers. Um, I'd put him up there with Pynchon. Not as good, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, he is, for me... And okay, I'm probably going to piss off a lot of graphic novels novelist fans, graphic novel fans. But like, do it for my money. Same thing. (laughs) (laughs) For my money, like I've read a lot of graphic novels. I do not have a big respect for the genre. Yep. But I have a huge respect for Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I read like I've read a Fun House. I've read some of the other or fun home, whatever, some of the more popular ones, and none of them really hit in the way that Moores do. Um, and also of the, the trade paperback comics and stuff that I've read, it's he's just in a league of his own, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, I've read, you know, Frank Miller. He's, you know, Sin City is great. I've read a lot of the, um, you know, heavy hitters, a lot of the famous graphic novelists. And the thing that I love about Alan Moore is he's like, I don't like the term graphic novel. <laughs> yeah, like, he thinks it's, it's like, a marketing term. Yeah, he thinks it like takes uh, comics away from like working class people as like he it makes it bougie. I think is what he says mm-hmm. in so many words. And that's the thing that I really like about Alan Moore was I was looking over his career and like he was like 
he was from a working class background and he got into comics through the indie route which is just crazy to me yeah yeah i mean i think he uh he talks in interviews about how i think his parents were like working class but his grandparents were extremely impoverished they were like Mm, very very poor um and i'm not sure if he went back but i know i don't think he even finished high school i think a lot of what he's done is is self-taught um you know he's just a a very talented and prolific guy um who yeah he was doing he like he i think he like like tried to go to college or a uh, art school and then like Got kicked out for selling LSD. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yep. That's fun. And then he just, like, got into comics while being a janitor. Like, just very (laughs) inspirational. Yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely made the best of a tricky situation, I think. Like, he just, you know, he kills it. Yeah, so when, like, I think in this episode we're probably going to talk about... um, like, at times, I'll probably evoke some suspicion about a- certain aspects of Alan Moore's, like, spiritual beliefs. But I'm not uh, ignorant of the fact that he's from a working-class background. He stayed living in Northampton. Like, he seems like a very cool dude. So I have nothing but respect for him in that regard. Yeah, and I mean, I think we could probably talk about that some because... He definitely, I mean, he speaks very highly of Aleister Crowley, um, Kenneth Anger, people who, you know, I think we have different opinions than he does about those yeah. folks. Uh, I think but, so. But I think that it makes him a, an interesting author and character to look at, you know, his appreciation for them and how it informs his work and, you know... Also, the ways that, you know, he's got blind spots, you know, in my opinion. Um, Doesn't make him a bad dude necessarily, but yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I don't know if you noticed, and I know we might be jumping around. I'm pretty sure jumping around is what we're going to have to do with a man with works like Alan Moore's, right? But His works jump around. I think we'd be doing a disservice to him if we didn't. It is in the spirit of Alan Moore to jump around, I think. But in the book, uh, the comic, because that's his preferred term, in the comic uh, from Hell, in one of the, I guess, interstitial pages that just has text, he -hmm. actually quotes Kenneth Anger. Not Kenneth Anger, excuse me. He quotes Kenneth Grant. Really? Which, yes, very, very interesting. So it's like Crowley, Grant, Kenneth Anger, like... <clears throat> huh. A lot of interesting dudes, you might say. <clears throat> yeah. Wow, I didn't so, even pick up on that. So, uh, just for the uh, listeners out there, uh, I'll, I'll, like, I think Aleister Crowley doesn't need an introduction, but Kenneth Grant is a guy that I zeroed in on. Um, he was actually one of Crowley's acolytes towards the end of his life, and he has written some, I guess you might say, very telling books on magic as in very telling about doing human sacrifices uh doing murder as ritual magic and basically the stuff that would make 
Jack the Ripper makes sense from a high ceremonial magic perspective. That is in Kenneth Grant's books. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah. Um, Wow. Let's uh, let's talk about From Hell since we're on the topic. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. So I read From Hell a couple years ago. And... So I read From Hell a couple of years ago, and I would say I did not get nearly as much out of it as I did this second time through. I read it uh, for this episode, and I was just completely blown away by it. Like, I think it helps to know uh, going in a little bit about magic, because the more I knew, the more I got out of it. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, my... Uh, relationship with the book and with magic I think is kind of the opposite because I read it a couple years ago and it kicked off like a a very deep suspicion of magic for me because it's like (laughs) you know it is used to do you know terrible evil in the book Um, and it, it, it kind of led me to have an interest you know in understanding what I can about you know, magic and, and the practices surrounding it. Um, and so, yeah, rereading it now after the research that I've done, it was like, yeah, it hits harder for sure. That's, that's very interesting. Like, it's so interesting because Alan Moore in From Hell, he is essentially not, uh, his depiction of magic in From Hell is very challenging because he is not necessarily making it... I mean, he depicts Dr. Gull, who is the uh, physician to the Queen. He's depicted as the Jack the Ripper character. Or, I guess you could say, more or less. By the way, lots of spoilers here. Don't if Yeah. Heads up on that. It's also a 20-year-old book, though, so I think it's fair game. Yeah, for events that occurred, like, over 200 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, there were some murders, right? Um, so he depicts Dr. Gull as, I would say, not entirely unsympathetic, even though he's basically murdering prostitutes. And I find that very challenging and provocative, but I would argue that a strong, like, attentive reading shows him to be not in sympathy with Dr. Gull. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, I... I actually am curious to hear you. I don't get a sympathetic read at all. Um, yeah. I would be curious to hear in what ways you think he is somewhat sympathetic, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that he is deep. Like, I think any time you're giving an opposing viewpoint, because I, I don't think Alan Moore thinks very many of the things Dr. Gull thinks, but I think any time you give fully a platform to fairly express someone's beliefs even if they're repugnant i think that there's like he's big enough to give full voice to what is basically a horrifying ideology or spiritual belief right and it means that he at least understands it if not agrees with it which i think that can be very off-putting and scary to people right 
I yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think you could draw a parallel between the way Moore depicts Doctor Gull and the way like Cormac McCarthy depicts the Judge. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they're both very strong villains, and the book doesn't shy away from, like you said, kind of fairly hearing them out. Right now, I'm not certain that. I think Alan Moore is less sympathetic to Dr. Gold than McCarthy is to the judge, maybe. Um, yeah. I that might that be a hot a take. Fair reading. Yeah. But but no, I mean, especially I think it's the fourth chapter where uh, Dr. Gold is driving around London with his uh, carriage driver, Netley, and he walks him through the entire lineage of you know how he sees himself from, I think, like Dionysian architects through, uh, you know, pre-Roman people living on the British Isles and then through the Roman invasion um, and then through the history of London up until the present day to construct this argument that there's essentially a a cosmic, astrological, you know, unending struggle between masculinity and femininity and that his, you know, spiritual obligation given to him by God is to, you know, defeat femininity and, you know, subsume it to what he sees as the powers of the sun and masculinity and all that. Um, and Moore doesn't, I mean, he it's pretty cold, as you'd expect, but it's not like, he's not like doing fingers tapping together and saying, like, he, 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 I'm an evil man. Like, this is just what he believes. Um, yeah. And you as the reader are, you know, I think expected to judge it for yourself. Yeah, that's something that I think Moore has the courage to do is to trust his readers to interpret things. Uh, in some ways, well, I I want to go back to the judge thing, but in some ways he kind more reminds me of Nabokov in that, like, say a work like Lolita can and is constantly misinterpreted in favor of pedophilia to the point where you question whether it was a wise thing to write it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that fewer people are going to be swayed by the idea that you should go out and ritually murder several prostitutes to, you know, carry out an act of magic. But I think that he's, he trusts readers to know not to do that. And that's still scary, but I mean, I still agree with you that he's fundamentally like, no, don't do that. He's just not saying it in the work, which is interesting. Right. Well, I mean, and we kind of talked about this before, but like he explicitly doesn't say that in the work because in the work, Dr. Gull is successful. I mean, the yeah. I think the, the scariest part and the most powerful part of the, the text is that I mean, Dr. Gull has visions as he's committing these horrific crimes of the world that he's creating and more suggesting that we live in that world. Like we, yeah, you know, the magic worked, you know, masculinity wins and, and, you know, we live in hell, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's not there's a very scene... uplifting book. <laughs> no, um, there's the scene towards the, I think after the last murder where he sort of like, I think he takes ashes maybe from <clears throat> burning one of the hearts of the prostitutes, I think. Mm-hmm. And he like 
throws it into the air and it like goes up and I think he says something like, um, I, I probably have the quote here, but like, like I'm giving birth to the 20th century or something to that effect. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it, that, yeah. Yeah. And he, he does. I mean, it, it starts to, I mean, the book opens with the two, the two detectives or the detective and then another character. The, um, the psychic. Yeah. Yeah, the psychic, right? Um, walking along the beach, and I think in the first five pages they talk about the Bolshevik Revolution is either imminent or I forget exactly when it's happening, but it's either happened or is imminent. World War One is ongoing. I mean, and then the mm-hmm. book ends there too, and it's you know more saying, yeah, that this magic created all of these evils and terrors, and then I mean. Even in that, I think it's the second to last chapter where Dr. Gull, as he's dying, he passes through time and he goes back and he sees William Blake and he also goes forward and sees other serial killers in London who are working in the same lineage, um, performing, yeah, yeah, murders just the same. And I found it really interesting that when he went and saw William Blake, it's basically stated that the you know, cause William Blake, he would see visions and he would make these poems and paintings that were very powerful. And the one wherein he sees, uh, Dr. Gull's spirit is, I think it's a painting where it's like the vision of the spirit of a flea. Yeah. That's what it's called. Something like that. Yeah. And it's and horrifying. I think it's real scary. <laughs> it's a scary painting. I'll, I think when we drop the episode, I'll probably include it and it it's very interesting and i think that's a like tip to people that i don't think alan moore is um endorsing dr gull's like i don't think he's saying that like dr gull is um i guess actually becoming god right right that's yeah. a uh, little nod there yeah i mean gull dies i think believing that he's becoming god but i don't i think Yes. That, yeah. yeah, but it's pretty clear that that's not the case. I mean, it. it I think the text definitely le- comes down on Gull being an evil man. Um, and I think you mentioned, too, that uh, right before he dies, basically, he also has a vision of one of the surviving prostitutes mm-hmm. <clears throat> who has gone on, I think, returned to Ireland and yep. raised a whole family of girls and that's one of his dying scenes in his head yeah basically that his mission technically failed and he didn't realize it so i think that that's another indication that like he didn't completely succeed absolutely and i mean i think that there's um i I don't know how much we're going to talk about the annotations at the back of the book um which you know listeners if you read from hell, you should absolutely read the annotations. They're wonderful. They rock. Um, but, but yeah, um, he, he walks through pretty much every panel in the book, except for that, that one page where the woman sees, um, sees his spirit and wards him off basically. Um, and he says that that's for you to, that's the only thing he doesn't walk you through. He says, that's for you to interpret. I think, I think the correct interpretation is that, you know, not that it's an optimistic book, but that there is hope. Right. And that like 
this community of women um, is capable and and there's like a struggle to you know fight against what goal represents which I mean is a lot of bad shit magic Freemasons the royal family I mean like yeah he kind of hits um, all the I, boxes I agree with you that I don't think I've seen or at least like I haven't seen such a good villain since probably the judge in Blood Meridian, like extremely, you know, well fleshed out, fully realized vision tied to his actions. Like, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Goal is is the center of the book for sure. Um, and he, he's, I think in addition to, I would say Goal is the most triumphant part in addition to more, working with and kind of explicating his ideas about the fourth dimension and, you know, time and space and the way that they relate to one another um, and our experiences of those things. Um, But, but yeah, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Well, real quick before that, even uh, early on in the novel, Dr. Gull, he is a very distinguished physician. And by the way, this is a real guy. Like, he was a real person in history. And virtually everyone in the novel, or the comic, is a real person, I, I believe. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's the case. And even minor characters, it's it's very erudite. But Dr. Gull, early on, he actually... Uh, he basically takes one of the prostitutes who gets put in a mental institution because she had uh, given birth to a royal bastard, basically. And he did basically a psychosurgery to make her go crazy. Yeah, he gives her iodine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like, whoa, early, real early MKUltra shit right there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, and that's... I mean, fitting for your podcast, but like this book and I, you know, I hope we, I think we should talk about this more when we start talking about Moore's works more broadly, but like, Mm -hmm. I think that this is the beginning of Moore turning his eye back from the 20th century and trying to find explanations for the world we live in, in the 19th. I think that that's Moore's general career trajectory is his early works are about things like MK ultra Nazi uh, scientists going to South America, um, intelligence agencies using military funding to, you know, I mean, Dr. Manhattan's not created intentionally, but he ends up being, you know, the thing that wins the Cold War for America. Um, yeah. And and then I think starting around the time that he writes from hell, more starts to feel that those explanations for the later 20th century are insufficient and he traces the lineage kind of as you've done with uh, the Sullivan and Cromwell and all that um, back to earlier in the uh, in history. Yeah, I mean, Lord knows I'm nowhere near Alan Moore's level, but I agree with the impulse to basically keep looking back further and further in history to try to get some answers. And you do find answers. You just also find more questions. It's horrifying and very entertaining at the same time yeah um but but yeah um i mean 
goal, as we I think we've said, is a, is a Freemason, um, and more depict. Right. He depicts very uh, in no uncertain terms what those initiations look like um, in the annotations. I believe he talks a little bit about how he got some insider knowledge, like some of the stuff that he puts to the page is, you know, not exactly known uh, widely. Yeah. No, for sure, because I think that it is like. It's technically all out there, but the more esoteric stuff is much harder to find. Like, you can find the basic rituals in books if you just try. Uh, But he depicts them on the page. And I think if you were to read From Hell not knowing about Freemasonry, you do basically get a pretty good overview of the early initiations Mm -hmm. uh, as they occur to Dr. Gull, I'm pretty sure. And, man, I was just reading a different book that uh, is not completely related. I was reading the uh, King Kill 33, which is about (laughs) the Masonic uh, elements to JFK's assassination. And I think that there is a line in there that says that if you want to see early, like, group control early group mind control look at freemason rituals because they absolutely are like extremely effective at getting groups of people to do certain things and that is the point of like a secret society basically yeah absolutely and i mean you see that in pretty clearly in from hell where uh i mean goals actions and this is I think what maybe what the Jack the Ripper killings are most famous for is they became like an early tabloid sensation. Um, and mm-hmm. every single paper was, you know, running any information they could. And more talks about the ways in which journalists inadvertently or not so much are, you know, working hand in hand with the secret society to create a mass hysteria to, uh, you know, point blame at people who are innocent to you know generate media attention sorry my cat just jumped in my lap um but but yeah i mean you you have a you have this expression of these killings as being a a a totalizing event for the society and that is directly the result of freemasonic ritual murder i mean that's i mean in no uncertain terms (laughs) yeah Like, for the listeners who haven't read the book, the general plot, and I won't do the in-depth, but the general plot is there was a royal bastard fathered by, I think, Prince Eddie, who is, Mm -hmm. I think, Queen Victoria's child. And basically, the mother is made insane by Dr. Gull. Six, five or six prostitutes uh, basically try to blackmail Prince Eddie's friend for some money just because they knew about it. And that is where Dr. Gull is sent in by Queen Victoria to, to basically murder them, to silence them. And then the part, that's the only part that the Royal family cares about. And then Dr. Gull's personal vision quest is to do it as a mass like ritual, basically. So that's in broad strokes, the plot just for people who haven't read it yet. You should read it though. 
it should be required Absolutely. reading for a program to chill listeners for sure. <laughs> Highly recommended. Um, I, something I think we haven't talked about that we should is that, you know, for all the attention that Moore gives to uh, Dr. Gull, and he does give a lot, um, he does a really good job, I think, depicting the realities of what it's like to be a working class person in the 1870s, 1880s. And specifically, I mean, his care for the four prostitutes, um, four or five, however many, the main women who end up getting murdered, I mean, they're almost as important characters as as Dr. Gull, and it would be easy to just kind of write them off, but Moore doesn't do that. He gives them personalities, you learn their histories, um, and I think that that makes the book that much stronger. Absolutely. I mean, he depicts them and I believe it's all like true for, you know, as far as that goes, like ones from Sweden, several are mm-hmm. from Ireland. Like these are people, immigrants on the margins of society. And like the fact that they're prostitutes matters a great deal to Dr. Gull. And I wanted to pull up here. Let's see here. There's a quote Uh, when Dr. Gull is explaining his reasoning. And he says to Netley, who is the man who assists Dr. Gull, he's like a carriage driver. So Dr. Gull says, Diana, for example, is she but an ancient fairy tale? A symbol meaning dreams and womanhood? A deified princess from long ago? A myth? A symbol? History? And, like, the... Handmaidens of Diana, like that was like, you you know, in like Roman history, there were uh, prostitutes basically that would work at the temples of these pagan gods, right? And they were revered by society. They had a much different, (laughs) like they were more revered than prostitutes now who are, you know, in Victorian England, like the lowest of the low. Right. And so he is continuing to assert like, the control of men over women in that regard, which was so different in ancient societies. But what this also reminds me of is he wrote this only a few years after princess Diana was, I think pretty, I think I'm just going to say it murdered by MI6. And <laughs> my question to you is to, do you think that Alan Moore is princess Diana pilled? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that dude, he's pilled on everything. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's just, you know, I mean, he took the magic pill, eh, but yeah, he, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he was writing about. I mean, brought to light came out in what eighty six or something, mm-hmm. and uh, cutting edge. I mean, he, he, he says something about. I wrote it down. Where is it? Um, on like the third, like the first couple pages of that book, he talks about how the CIA is full of P two Masons. And it's like, <laughs> that was 40 That's years ago he's saying that. Yeah, yeah. It really does remind me of uh, Pynchon, you know, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, MK Ultra experiments and crying about 49 in, what, 1967 or 69 or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think Alan Moore is uh, Diana Pilled for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I brought to the table some uh, themes for us to talk about. Some of Moore's favorite favorite shit. Um, oh, this is funny. Before we go on, um, 
he he did he showed up on the simpsons like pinching yeah it's, i saw that yeah one of the only <laughs> shows he said he watches and likes um mm-hmm. but uh yeah i mean i think uh i think we could talk about um alan moore's relationship with depicting intelligence agencies in his work because um, they they come up a lot um yeah in almost all of his major works i would say um so i mean we could start with from hell um which you know the freemasons kind of function as an early intelligence agency yeah i think absolutely because like first and foremost a lot of at least in the early cold war virtually all of the uh cia were masons freemasons at least the higher up guys and I completely agree. The way they're depicted as basically embedded in like the police department mm-hmm. and in like the coroners and the doctors, like the judges, and then like... they'll they'll swap guys out when they need a certain thing to happen in From Hell. It's yep. just like that is basically what used to happen, and then those things. You're completely right. Eventually, became formal intelligence agencies. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, he he's preoccupied with the role of, of gathering intelligence um, and, you know, the, the ends that it can be put to. Um, I mean, I'll, I can just kind of walk through, you know, his depictions of it. I mean, in um, Watchmen is definitely, uh, I mean, to the degree that the superheroes and Dr. Manhattan are you know, working with intelligence in Vietnam, you know, and kind of yeah. serving as, as, uh, agents in that capacity. Um, even in Swamp Thing, um, there's... I was gonna ask, yeah, because that's the one I haven't read. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I gotta plug it, it's probably my favorite. I think it's, uh, his most human and, and just, it's a, it's a very sweet, heartwarming story, uh, at the end mm-hmm. of the day, which you don't get a lot of from more. Um, no, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, so I mean, Swamp Thing hit his whole thing and then he's super, he's, he's famous for this, but before Moore took over Swamp Thing, uh, the, the premise was that a man turned into a, a plant, right? Like there's, yeah. there's an ac- there's an accident that is involving, intelligence agencies killing a scientist and he dies and then he comes back to life you know his body as a plant and then Moore says no uh instead of a man coming back as a plant swamp thing is a plant that thinks it's a man right so the um i forget the character's name but his the the elemental that is swamp thing like at first thinks it's a reincarnation of this man who died and then it it turns out that he's um actually an earth elemental right um and that's mm. a, a again spoiler alert sorry um but you kind of learn that in like the first book but anyway so even early in his career um you've got intelligence agencies and before that he wrote uh marvel man which again got a plug it absolutely rocks and it was recently reprinted um but the whole second book in that series is about um the origins of of the superheroes in the world and they came from a nazi scientist who was smuggled over to south america 
and was doing some pretty depraved experiments, turning people into superheroes and then having his way with them. Which, by the way, I mean, not. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would re- realize that that's essentially also the plot to Captain America. It's just more is being more explicit about it. Right, absolutely. I mean, and- in Captain America, I think it's like a Jewish scientist or whatever, but like it's fundamentally like a government project to make a super soldier. So it's like, you know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, you know, people talk about Moore's you know, uh, his postmodern, like, turning the tropes of the genre on their head or whatever, which I don't particularly think is a fair reading. I think he just looks at them for what they are, right? Like like you said, I mean, Captain America, which was published before Marvel Man, was the same thing. More it's just like, yeah, so if a scientist... This, this is this, what it would look like in real life. Yeah. That's what he does. It's not really flipping it he's just making it seem real right um but but yeah so you've got that the centrality of intelligence agencies in marvel man it's not huge in swamp thing but it's there watchmen Mm -hmm. um and then he writes you know as we've kind of talked a little bit about brought to light which is a history of the cia uh from prior to its Inception as like, when it was the OSS, uh, all the way through Iran Contra, um, and that's the most explicit that I think he gets. Um. Yeah, I mean, I remember realizing that he wrote that around when I was first reading stuff like The Devil's Chessboard and like you know some Stephen Kinzer, like, and I got that and I was reading it and like it's not necessarily like very fun or. I wouldn't say it's not interesting. It's very interesting. It's not like a typical Alan Moore thing, right? Yeah, it's only it's like maybe really two episodes or something. Yeah, like it's, it's pretty short. Yeah, it's very short. Um, and yeah, the first time I read it was before I'd kind of gotten into a lot of the research. And I remember almost feeling underwhelmed. I was like, yeah. You know, and then I reread it for this, and it it's not underwhelming. It's just him putting again on the page just the reality of of you know the latter half of the 20th century and yeah. i mean one thing he keeps doing is he keeps talking about how many gallons of blood are in a human and then all of the atrocities that the cia has facilitated or you know d- done directly and how many swimming pools full of blood uh they fill and like it's that kind of thing where it, it's just it it just kind of makes you feel sick like it's not fun. Yeah. It's bleak. Makes you feel really bad. And and then, like, reading it after you know a lot, like, you know, now, like, there are these little details where you're just like, oh, he was talking about Iran-Contra, like, right away. He was mentioning the P2 stuff, like, <laughs> so there is some indication that he was quite well-versed in a lot of this stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Um, which, I mean, I, you know, we kind of said that we like more, and I do. I love the man, but you do got to wonder, you know, where was he getting some of this information when he had it? Um, yeah, I mean, he was selling LSD in art school, 
like, <laughs> yeah. What? Where was? What was his plug? You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. R- raises some questions. Yeah, and he would have been right. I think he, he was born. Let me see. I wrote it down in '53. So yeah, if he's 18, that's 71. That's prime time, baby. Like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess technically Britain's had LSD since '43. Because basically that's when it was discovered and it was owned by a British company. So they had it (laughs) before anyone else, basically. Yeah. But very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyways, but yeah, so he, um, but yeah, his, he's, his obsession with intelligence goes on though. I mean, it goes through from how like we've talked about, um, and then I, I recently read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, yeah. which is interesting, but is explicitly about the formation of a, you know, off the books group of superheroes who, you know, do what, you know, British intelligence needs done that they don't want to ask people to do on the record. Um, and then, yeah, they're basically just spies. Like yeah. they have like the invisible man. I forget which other characters. Cause I read it a long time ago, but what, like they're all basically like both superheroes and spies. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he writes, so he wrote two books, uh, about, um, the lady from Dracula, Mina Harker. Yeah. yeah, it's Mina Harker, Alan Quartermain, Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and um, I feel like there's a fifth that I'm forgetting. But anyways, he writes their story, and then he writes what's called The Black Dossier, which is about a Mr. Bond, uh, if you mm-hmm. want it to be any more explicit. And um, Mina Harker gets her hands on this book that talks about how the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is almost an eternal group, right? Going like Orlando from uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando is proposed to be in it. And he, she, they were immortal. And, and, you know, there's a comic in the black dossier that goes through them as a spy from, you know, shit like Greco Roman times through, you know, the 20th century. Um, and then I haven't finished the series, but yeah, I mean, he's he's suggesting a a an almost like I said eternal, never ending line of of spies. And <laughs> the thing the thing that I find really interesting about that is like he's obviously taking fictional characters and making them like into superhero spies. But I've spent a lot of time recently uh, writing about British literature. Uh, it'll come out in future episodes, but basically it seems like just about every, uh, major British author was a spy, like almost all of them. For real? Like, no, for real. It's like George Orwell, Anthony Burgess. Um, I forget. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Graham Greene was a spy. Like John Le Carre, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh. Uh, Ian Fleming, but then yeah. also a bunch of children's authors like Roald Dahl. Um, was and Lewis Carroll? The goes on. N- well, <laughs> <laughs> interesting question, right? Uh, not, not. 
explicitly, but he was a <laughs> nonce who took who did child pornography. So. Yeah, he was a sicko, so. Exactly. And yeah. then J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. The list goes on and on and on. <laughs> like, more people that I've even left out. And so it's just like, well, okay, maybe these fictional characters weren't real, but, like, the authors that wrote these books, half of them were literally spies. So it's just like... <laughs> Okay, like, engaging with this idea is, like, not frivolous. Alan Moore, like, knows these things, right? Yeah, yeah, man. I hate that island so much. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is a safe space for me to say that. It's a horrible, horrible place. Um, (laughs) And that's that's the thing, too, is, like, I I like that Alan Moore knows which parts of England to love, which is to (laughs) say the poor people. The the Irish that are stuck there, like, <laughs> you know, like he knows yeah. what's good about England. Yeah, and then he's he doesn't hold back uh, on the shit that sucks for sure. Um, well, just V for Vendetta, obviously baked throughout with intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in I mean, speaking of Orwell, right? Like, it's a, mm-hmm. you know, that whole. Every character's life in that book is subsumed in intelligence shit. Um, but, I, yeah, and I, I just wanted to, you know, his last comic, um, or his last major work, I think he wrote one small thing afterwards, but he wrote um, Neonomicon in Providence, which is a cycle about H.P., uh, like, inspired by and, and kind of working with H.P. Lovecraft's uh, yeah. shit. Um and spoiler you've been you've been trying to get me to read that i haven't read it yet but it's on my list like i want to read this okay maybe one day i can read it and you know we can get back on and talk about it okay i would i i think we should totally do that because especially if we're talking about these lineages looking to the past Mm -hmm. um i mean yeah i won't spoil it because i know they're like re-releasing it too and there's probably people listening who are gonna buy it and read it because it was hard to find but Suffice to yeah. say, uh, yeah, there's plenty of uh, intelligence shit going on in that one too. Um, oh, yeah, there's so there's so much with that Lovecraft stuff. Like, <laughs> there's so much going on with Lovecraft. Well, I mean, what's you did that thread that what links it does it link? I mean, it was Lavenda, right? Who linked mm-hmm. Lovecraft and Crowley yeah. and basically Kenneth Grant, who we mentioned earlier, was a acolyte of Aleister Crowley, but he went on to form his own very idiosyncratic type of magic that basically, it sounds incredibly stupid, (laughs) (laughs) but it's basically like Aleister Crowley's system plus HP Lovecraft. (laughs) And it's like basically (laughs) taking serious the idea that there are eldritch gods and horrors that we can't even fathom and Basically taking serious that as a metaphor, which sounds absurd on the face of it until you realize, like, basically where ritual magic has gone, partially due to Kenneth Grant, but partially just with other people too. And then, like, where, like, the culture has gone, like, it was very prescient. And it's, (laughs) like, and then Kenneth Grant's... uh, it's very hard to get a lot of good information about him. I read several of his books, but there's no good biography to my 
uh, knowledge. And he, he basically writes about like child sacrifice and <sighs> things of this nature. So it's just like, he's like a deadly serious, high ritual magic, like high ceremonial magic magician. And he explores all these ideas and he's deeply into Lovecraft. Or, yeah. Lovecraft. So it's just like, Oh, there's a lot going on with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because again, I'm trying to, I'll shy away from spoilers, but one of the things that Moore is most interested in regarding Lovecraft is the way that Lovecraft almost like some of the, like, you know, in his books, there are ideas that spread and, and infect and, and can drive you mad and, and can, you know, change you in these like really fundamental ways. Right. And, Moore's really obsessed with the way that Lovecraft himself as a figure and and his works have kind of, you know, become shot through our culture, right? So if Kenneth Grant was picking up on that back in, what, the 50s? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, as an early adopter. Because, I mean, now if you look at it, I mean, people like William S. Burroughs, who spy 100%. Um, yeah. But, you know, Burroughs was influenced by Lovecraft and... and now, I mean, it seems like every third movie has some kind of Lovecraftian horror or, you know, yeah. unspeakable entity, you know, like that that's like become non-Euclidean geometry beast or something. Yeah, I mean, even uh, uh, that Marvel Doctor Strange, you know, has yeah. like shades of, of Lovecraft and, you know, and Stranger Things and the list goes on. Yeah, yeah, we could spend all day listing shit, but um, but yeah, more is really interested in, in the way that lovecraft himself has infected our culture so to speak so real quick i'd just like to read the uh quotes that alan moore saw fit to insert uh in the from hell comic uh just they're pretty short here they say kenneth basically kenneth grant says uh, from the confessions of alistair crowley because kenneth grant was around towards the end of crowley's life He says, at the time, London was agog with the exploits of Jack the Ripper. One theory of the motives of the murderer was that he was performing an operation to obtain the supreme black magical power. And the second quote from Kenneth Grant's book, The Magical Revival, says, Blood blood is the great materializing agent, both for spirits that would incarnate this world or on this plane, and for spirits which, remaining in another world, wish to assume a shape in order to impress their presence upon human beings. <sighs> and basically, what happens like at several points when Dr. Gull murders these prostitutes, he sees increasingly stronger visions of things. <clears throat> and yes, obviously he's insane, but there is... In Kenneth Grant's works, which I've read and I have a thread on it, you know, like showing some selections, basically the hypothesis is that you explore this whole like dark inverse Kabbalah where you travel through and you basically live a whole life of depravity and you get to the bottom and you obtain like major spiritual power, but like Uh. evil. (laughs) And that is... He, like clearly Alan Moore was using that because he very explicitly like quotes it. Yeah. And he's, 
it's in there. It's in From Hell. Like, he's talking about this stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, man. And it's, I mean, again, I mean, as so he's talking about it in From Hell, which it was early 90s, I think he started it at least. Mm-hmm. And then in Providence, there's an inverse Kabbalah that is very yeah. important. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is rewarding to read through his works because he, he, he is like clearly wrestling with these same things over and over and over again. And every time it's like, he gets closer and closer and closer. Um, man, that Kenneth Grant shit's spooky. I'm distracted thinking about it. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I know. And like, the thing is like, I don't believe that Alan Moore is doing that shit, but he knows about it. And I don't think that knowing about it is necessarily bad. I mean, Lord knows I have read a lot about it. (laughs) It freaks me (laughs) out. But like, I think that Alan Moore was attempting to understand Jack the Ripper, you know, as a magical act. And I think we can argue whether that's true on a historical level. But like, I do think that, and Dr. Gull says that because he is first and foremost like a, like a scientist, a doctor. And he mm-hmm. actually says at one point towards the last murder that he commits, he was like, oh, like brain, like chemical changes are occurring right now. I'm seeing hallucinations. Like doing <laughs> such a horrific act is literally changing my brain. And then he like, and so he's like almost walking you through what would be, because like, Alan Moore, like, has a very, in interviews, he talks about how it's basically all magic is just in our brains. Like, he doesn't necessarily think of, like, the Fantasia thing where things are floating around. Like, he thinks it's all, like, a psychological thing. He says the one place that God truly exists is within the human mind. Yeah, exactly. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, 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 I, I don't know where to go from there, but like, so basically just, that's his view of magic, and that, I think that, basically, uh, I'm not sure where to go with that either, but... I mean, well, I mean, I th- one thing that's interesting about, uh, you know, From Hell and Magic and, and Alan Moore is, if I'm not mistaken... And cut this if I am, but I don't think I am. The, the last thing, like the, the last major work he wrote before becoming a magician was From Hell. Um, mm, I believe so. Which is, I, I, I mean, it just makes you wonder because, and we kind of talked about this the other day, but like magic is depicted so violently and, and I mean, the murders in the book are, are hard to read. I think like it's, it's, it's a real, it's challenging yeah. in that way. Um, and so you've got to ask yourself like, wh- and again, I'm not trying to like ca- casting aspersions, but like, how do you go from, you know, writing this horrific book about the violence and that, you know, is, entails from these magical acts and then be like, yeah, I'm going to be a magician. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Right. I mean, here's my hypothesis, and, you know, Lord knows he's still alive, so, I mean, he could correct us <laughs> if I wanted, but, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure he's got better things to do than listen anyway. But so my hypothesis is that he is rightfully showing Freemasonry as a satanic, like, magical system, mm-hmm. basically. And he, I think, is implying the existence of magic that is not evil. He's just right. not depicting it right in From Hell. I right. think that's the short answer, maybe. Yeah, and I mean, I think I haven't read Promethea, but he has a pretty long, mm. deep dive into what he said is kind of like his dissertation about his magical beliefs. Um, I should probably read that. In fact, I I will. Yeah, I I was curious about that one too. The arts, I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, like that style i like i liked the from hell i really recommend the colorized version it was easier to read than just the black and white stuff but that's also still really i like the art from from hell quite a bit yeah i i wasn't taken seeing pictures of the prometheus stuff but i i do want to see him really just kind of lay it all bare exactly um i really liked though that Alan Moore wrote from hell because he was inspired ironically by that, uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. The guy who wrote, he wrote one of the other books that basically the premise is to solve a crime holistically. You have to solve the entire society that the crime occurs in. And basically a murder or any crime occurs as a consequence of the politics and the economics of the time. And, I am enchanted with that idea. That's like basically Roberto Bolaño's 2,666 in a nutshell, right? I mean, mm-hmm. those murders don't get solved. Right. To understand it, you have to understand everything about the society, basically. Right. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, if there's ever been like a... Like we've said, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, if Dr. William Gold was Jack the Ripper or not. Um, yeah. But if there's ever been a true crime book that in the sense that it truly and faithfully attempts to understand everything about not just the facts of the murder, but as we've talked about, like the society itself, it's from hell. I mean, it's that that's it it feels like encyclopedic, you know, I mean, there's one thing that like stays with me is he taught he he shows how these, you know, working women, these prostitutes um, if they can't afford a bed, they'll pay to sleep on a bench, right? But the benches are so crowded, they have to sleep s- sitting up. And so whoever is running the, the, the space where they're sleeping, they have a rope. And so they, they run it across the bench, like around chest height. Mm-hmm. And so the women can lean forward onto the rope. And then it shows this. It shows in the morning, they'll just like take the rope off the hook and the women all kind of like stumble and like, you know, like are, are abruptly awoken because they're leaning forward and then they're all of a sudden falling over. But it's like every page has stuff like that. I mean, it, it, yeah. it you know, he's really trying to look at like every single detail to, to mine out like, you know, how this happened and what it means to live in the shadow yeah. of it. Just amazing. All right. So from here, let's see. Um... Are, do you got more themes, like major yeah, themes? Yeah, I've or? got more stuff to talk about. I mean, let's let's talk about Sweet. God, baby. Um, let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Alan Moore is obsessed with God, you know, and de- 
the idea of man becoming God, God becoming man, the line between God and man. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it shows up, well, I, maybe not only in his earlier work, but definitely in his earlier work. I mean, Dr. Manhattan is, you know, depicted as, as godlike. Um, I mean, I think his whole narrative is like what happens when a man comes to possess the knowledge of God, the ability to see everything at once and control everything. He becomes functionally, like, especially towards the end, like, yeah, he's basically a god. Right. Um, and then uh, Marvel Man is, is a very similar narrative, although it's it's just explicitly about that at the end. It's about Marvel Man becoming c- God, creating a utopian society, and, and you know, the the what that looks like. And I think, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, it's kind of just maybe a Gen X thing, but more, I think every time comes down on like, gods are bad. Gods not to be trusted. Yeah. You know, like this is, this is a problem. Uh, yeah. Like I definitely have to keep in mind that he was living in England in like the fifties, sixties and seventies when like, there's no good reason to believe in God, both because of <laughs> how, how shitty England is, and also just, like, how bad the Anglican Church is, and there's no alternative, really. Right. Not to say that, like, American evangelicalism or Lord knows Mormonism are, like, dramatically better, but I'm just, you know, <laughs> saying, like, I, I understand, like, a certain amount of anti-clerical sentiment, if not necessarily as much about the anti-Christianity, right? Right. Not that I've specifically laid out Program to Chill as like a Christian podcast per se, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's just, he's very, very anti-institution. I mean, in that interview that we read, he, he, he basically says like, you know, I mean, his faith is for sissies, which is like... <laughs> Yeah, let me let me pull up what he said. Yeah. <laughs> so in all right. So real quick, I just wanted to say like I'm never bored reading Alan Moore. Every time, even interviews, there's something interesting that he's saying about something I haven't read and agree or not, like never bored. Yeah, before you before you read this, <laughs> I found a quote one time uh cuz I have this thing where if I like an author, I Google their name and Thomas mm-hmm. Pynchon to see if they've talked about Pynchon because I'm always curious. Ooh. And uh, he was like, he was talking about Gravity's Rainbow. He's like, yeah, it was, you know, one of the most interesting, challenging books I've ever read. You know, I it took me forever to read it. I read it in a week, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, oh, gosh. you read that in a week? Like, what? I like, just, I, <laughs> I was like, I feel like. If there's anyone who's ever read Gravity's Rainbow and didn't need like some like annotations or something, like it's <laughs> yeah. probably Alan Moore. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably the only person who's like, no, that part of the specific thing of London is wrong. Like, <laughs> 100%. Oh, that's amazing. Let's see here. So to return to what Alan Moore was saying about uh, faith, I guess you could say. 
there's a interview that we've read that he is very, he goes into quite a bit of detail and there's so much in the interview that, you know, you could spend, like we could have spent the whole time talking about just this interview, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but he says, uh, and I'll quote here. Um, let's see. He says, faith is for sit. Faith is for sissies who don't, who, okay. Faith is for sissies who daren't go and look for themselves. That's my basic position. Magic is based upon gnosis, direct knowledge. It's a kind of, I'm from Missouri, show me approach, if you like. I think that gnosis is probably the original form of spirituality in mankind. If you look back at the old Gnostic religions that preceded Christianity, and he goes on to talk about early Christianity, but... His basic premise is faith is bad, which is probably the main thing that I disagree with. Al the main thing that I disagree with Alan Moore on, right? It's like, it's not to say that he's wrong. It's just a choice, right? Right. Well, and it's, it's really tricky, right? Because on the one hand... You know, and I, I am, wouldn't call myself religious. I don't really know what I am. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's something to be said for exploring your own feelings and, and relationship with whatever it is you believe in. Like, that's certainly essential. Not only with religion, but with anything. I mean, you shouldn't just, you know, if you're doing conspiracy research. Um, I mean, a great example is that... that um, I, the quote from where George W. Bush is like allegedly didn't know or George H.W. Bush didn't know where he was on when Kennedy was killed and then it turns out that's like not really true and he he said a couple times throughout his life where he was and, and but people still yeah. peddle that right and like that's a great example of like yeah you, you shouldn't just take things at face value accept them sorry my dog's going wild um, but um, at the same time you know, and this is, I, I really do think that if there's, if he has one flaw, it's a mild case of Gen X brain, uh, where he's yeah. just, uh, he's just really skeptical of institutions, which sure, you know, that's, that's probably not a bad general position to hold, but, um, he, he writes them off wholeheartedly out of pocket, like just isn't interested in it at all. Um, and I mean, even if you don't accept what an institution has to say, like if you're not, but yeah, I mean, even if you, you know, like Roman Catholic church, right? Like not, you know, lots of evil there, lots of bad shit. Um, but an institution that's been around for that long and that's has such a seasoned colored history is worth knowing about and is worth listening to what they say. Again, don't, you know, just swallow it whole. But, you know, more seems to just, like, be dismissive to a degree, which I think is not great. Yeah. And, like, like I already made the joke that, like, yeah, the institutions in England are awful. But, like, I would argue that's, like, it almost makes more sense there and mm -hmm. to a lesser degree probably in the U.S. too, where our institutions are, like, arguably, like corrupted like at a base level so it's hard to see the good that can come of things but i 
and I went through a f- like a few years where I was very jaded about just about every institution in society, not to sound like uh, grandiose or like, you know, try hard or anything. But like, I think that it's too easy or too pat to just write off every institution. Right. And I mean, this is like, like, I'm not telling Alan Moore to change his mind or anything. Like, I think that <laughs> if you have a very healthy skepticism towards every institution, you're probably better served. It's just, I don't think that it's always good for yourself to write everything off in that way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, again, I mean, if nothing else, you miss out on, you know, some of the richness Community. of life. Community, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, and I will say to Alan Moore's credit, you know, he's certainly not a Freemason, I don't think. <laughs> but he yeah. he learned a lot about Freemasonry for from hell, right? Like, he's not unwilling to, you know, f- at least for the purposes of research and for fiction, look into that sort of thing. But he just, you know, his knee-jerk reaction is a little bit, um, you know off-putting i guess but you know i also don't get the sense that alan moore is the kind of guy who really wants a lot of community like (laughs) yeah i think he like well i read a little bit about his experiences growing up in northampton which at various points was i think the murder capital of england at the time and i get the i think he said something like at times community was the only thing we had like literally the only thing so i do have to remind remind myself that like his background shows that he is not unfamiliar with that yeah even as he might reject probably justly like queen and country for the most part (laughs) like that's a that's a fair uh response to that environment i think so yeah well i mean you know he never. I mean, I think he did leave Northampton for a bit, but he's back there now, um, and yeah. he he is very involved with the community. I know he um, he's got a movie that just had a limited showing a couple weeks ago called The Show. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but it was all filmed in Northampton. It's set in Northampton. Um, mm-hmm. He works like he's worked with musicians out of Northampton. There's a, a, a funny video of a Northampton rapper who's like like uh walking down a street like freestyling and alan moore's just dressed in like full magician garb behind him like walking kind of ominously um and for listeners you gotta google a picture of alan moore he's like very tall his beard is probably like a foot long his hair is also he looks the long. most he looks the most like a magician that anyone has ever looked unless they're actively playing merlin in a movie yeah yeah he wears like two rings on every finger um he's (laughs) he's a a character for sure um but to his credit though i mean one thing that he talks about in the interview and that i think is important to mention with him is that he's his belief in art as like a transformative affirmative thing is I think probably the most well articulated idea of what art is um, and can be that I've heard, right? Like somebody who is very in tune with what they're doing and why they're doing it. 
Yeah, I have a quote here from, I, I believe, the same interview, actually, where Alan Moore says that he believes that all artists have been divorced from their origins. Uh, I think he says, let's see here, that he's basically always telling artists not to sell themselves short, to not always sell out. Uh, he basically had a career both in the you know major comics uh Publishers, I think he was. It DC he was with, not or was it? Yeah, well, yeah. So um, he did, and this is where you know there's a lot of nuance to this shit. But basically, he did some work with Marvel with Marvel Man, um, and and that didn't end well. In fact, if you buy Marvel Man now, his name's not on it. Uh, It's published under the author is just the original author. Like he, they can't put his name on it. Um, and then he went to work for DC and I think that that relationship was pretty good for a while. I mean, he did, um, Swamp Thing with DC and then Watchmen famously is DC. He did the, uh, Killing Joke too. Yeah, the Killing Joke. He did the Whatever Happened to the Man, uh, hang on, I wrote it down. Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which is a a superhero comic. It's pretty short. It's worth checking out if you're into Superman. Um... And then they were not going to respect... So, basically, he had it stipulated in his contract that the Watchmen characters would become his as soon as Watchmen went out of print. And DC was like, dog, this is never going out of print. (laughs) And he was (laughs) pissed. Um, And so, yeah, they... He severed his relationship with them and then they've gone on to, you know, really bastardize his... Vision, I think. I mean, they've published a couple like sequels to Watchmen now. I haven't read them. I've heard they're bad. They made the movie, which I'm a little bit of an apologist for the movie. Um, and then they made that nightmare of a TV yeah. show, um, <laughs> which uh, that's another podcast. I won't start. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basically, he was he came up in the indies. He was in the majors. He went indie again. Like mm-hmm. he's one of those guys that's like obsessive over creative control, right? And I think that's fair when you're Alan Moore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fair if you're an artist. I think. I mean, you you know, you have a vision and you should see it through um, and not have tampering with it. Um, yeah, he talked. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, he taught, he, so there's a really good interview with him on uh, Chapo. Um, reluctant to plug that, but, you know, whatever, it's good. Yeah. Um, and uh, he talks about how art is, you know, is a, an ex, a type of magic, right? Like, if you can, mm-hmm. if you do art right and you have people all over the planet thinking the same thing, That is, like, fundamentally a magical act for him. Um, And then he also points out that artistry has been replaced by advertisements as the prevalent kind of magic in society where jingles from ads or images or whatever are now, you know, performing. Like, we are, when we participate in media and we take in ads, we're participating in a kind of magic that he sees as pretty insidious yeah i mean 
advertising is basically the use of psychological warfare for usually civilian means, right? Like there's <laughs> truly no difference between advertising and psychological warfare. And there's a really permeable line between psychological warfare and magic. So for sure, these things are all on a spectrum together or like a, a non-Euclidean shape or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he also said that art is like, basically our fourth survival priority like yep. he says like eating sleeping a place to shit which i don't know like whatever <laughs> if that's as high as the other two but like basically the very first thing humanity did after like securing food sources was make art and language was initially largely art and you know he talks about like mind-blowing like history of art type stuff that's really fascinating yeah well and he he also explicitly i forget if it's that interview or a different one but talks about magic as just language right that mm -hmm. that you know he talks about how like a grimoire is a, a grammar like it's it's a a set of rules and guiding principles to to structure a way of communicating with the universe or spirits or whatever um and and yeah I mean, I mean just what's more of a spiritual technology than like writing where you're basically putting thoughts into someone's mind and like that's so normalized in our world that we don't realize how powerful it can be that you can write something and make someone basically hear it in like a voice in their heads yeah i mean it, it's you know i think one of the things that he does really well and one of the th reasons that like i think his you know, I'm, I'm not into magic, but, like, one of the reasons I became interested in it as, like, a concept was because of his, you know, using it to kind of lay bare things that we take for granted or assume as being normal, right? And that observation about writing is is one of them. I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of power there, and you don't, you know, when you're scribbling a note to your, your to your wife or your husband or or to a friend or whatever, you don't think, you know, that you're... Your it's like a it's a transmission, you know what I mean from mm. from one soul or, or 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 being to another in a way that you know framed right is pretty profound. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, <laughs> some heady stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't really know where to go from there. I mean, I have other themes, but. Uh... <laughs> that's what what other uh what other themes you got all right let's see um we talked about gods talked about intelligence talked about lovecraft um origins i mean we've kind of touched on that with him and being from northampton but um he's obsessed with where people come from and why that matters um i mean you know I, we talked about swamp thing earlier and, and how he kind of flip the origin on its head and um miracle man is preoccupied with the origin of miracle man where like you know why why did this happen um but more seems to want to establish or understand you know if it's possible to distance yourself from who you were um you know is is change something that's really possible which 
you know, I mean, we haven't really dug too deeply into his, like, conception of the universe, but, you know, his his fourth-dimensional universe, which I'm so ill-equipped to talk about. I'm just not smart enough. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it would... His conception of the universe would say, no, there is no... Uh, there's no change, right? Like, we are... You know, we're we're on a on a track, and our from birth to death, we everything that has happened will happen and is happening, right from the right perspective. It, it's all concurrent. Um, but that comes up again and again in his work, and and you know, I think that ultimately has come down on the side of that. You know, we are who we've always been. You know. And always will be. Yeah. He explicitly, I think in the Chapo and other interviews, ties it to Nietzsche's eternal return concept. Yep. Yeah. And then I think he also ties it to Einstein and just advances in physics, which I'm also not particularly well equipped to talk about, <laughs> um, mainly through my own shortcomings. But, like... <laughs> I just, I do find it very interesting how preoccupied he is uh, with where people are from, the lineages of certain ideas, like literally like neighborhoods and architecture. Like I had a premium show recently where someone asked me about, uh, I think it was 9-11, like the World Trade Center buildings. And I started talking about psychogeography, but I hadn't reread from hell yet. And I would have had so much more to talk about in terms of like psychogeography because Dr. Gull basically gives you a, in the book from hell, he gives a guided tour of, of London and like, it's basically a magical tour. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if there are any tour guides that just do that basically, like drive you around to the different sites. Well, I mean, in from hell at the end, so he's, he gives the tour to Netley, right? His carriage driver. Mm-hmm. And uh, Netley proceeds to just puke all over the street because he's so, like, <laughs> fucked up about it. So maybe that wouldn't be the most lucrative tour experience, but it would... Uh... That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he even talks about in From Hell and, and, and other works, like, you know, what if history had, had an architecture, right? Like, mm-hmm. all of these... Everything in life for Alan Moore is the direct result of something which is the direct result of something ad infinitum. And as you kind of said, that's a really, really powerful way of thinking about anything because it, it it will lead you to answers and to more questions that need answering. Um, and without that kind of, you know, radical curiosity, it, I think it can be pretty easy to just kind of fall into what Moore would probably describe as like a trance. I mean, he talks about the, you know, the insane amount of information that we're all inundated with now. Um, And, you know, if you don't have the right mindset, I guess, you're powerless against that inundation. Yeah, and I think on the flip side, he views knowledge of these histories as liberatory, at least to an extent and like speaking personally like my religious background which i'm only starting to talk about in a limited way is 
I mean, <laughs> I haven't. I think I might have said it on the premium side, but like I was raised Mormon, right? And the Mormons have a downright Confucian understanding of the importance of family history. Right. Like it's really like only like in China where like revering, not revering, but like knowing about your ancestors is like so important. And like basically on a spiritual level, knowing about your ancestors. And that's something that I think Alan Moore understands, at least the part about how it, spiritually important it is to know about history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, my, I think we're kindred spirits in that, you know, I wasn't raised Mormon, but my mom left the church. Um, and mm-hmm. so I've got a lot of exposure, family, like all that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a genealogy to everything, right? And and mining that is crucial if you want to understand it, because otherwise you're just you're adrift, right? You're you're yeah. lost. I think Alan Moore understands the limitations to what history can give us, but by no means is that like like he's he understands the limitations of history and knowing about things, but he uses them nonetheless because like it the benefits outweigh the costs i think yeah and like i feel the same entirely yeah and i mean there's not really it's limited sure but without it there's not much else you know it's not like you have another avenue or another possibility you're you got to just kind of work with what you've got all right let's see where what were we? Genealogies, limitations of history. That's right. And Oh, yeah. And I would say that basically the same insight like applies to politics and organizing and anything, like any social action, basically. Like, I think that there is a major issue with the liberal conception of history that it's, they never say it's not important, but it's like far more important than they allow, I think. Right. Well, I mean, if your if your attitude is what's the quote like, the arc of history bends towards justice or whatever. I mean, then you don't need to know shit. You know, like it. Well, it's it's all headed there. You know, I'm just gonna, you know, watch MSNBC vote every four years or two if I'm a real worker if I'm really out there, um, <laughs> and uh, everything's gonna be fine, baby. Like, and that that doesn't hold any water. No. Like I would really, I'm really holding out for <laughs> the arc of history bending towards justice. I really hope that's true. I think that Alan Moore might suspect it isn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and I might be right there with him, but that's not to say that we shouldn't strive for that to be the case, rather than hoping. You know, like yeah. Well, but I mean, it. It. He talks about that in. An interview where he's like, you know, if if his four, if his fourth dimensional shit is true, and if we are you know born again when we die because our our soul or our energy or whatever is has nowhere else to go, then you know everything's preordained. Everything is is you know again everything that will happen has already happened and will happen again. But he talks about how if that's the case. Don't you want for the life you lead to be one of decency, one of goodness and love and community? 
because if you got to live the same life over and over and over again, might as well try to make it as good as possible for not just yourself, but those around you, because they're also fucking stuck. Um, yeah. And I think that that, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of solace to take in that. Yeah, I think that he's at heart a humanist, even if he takes very roundabout <laughs> routes to get there. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like, that's, at the end of the day, if anybody is still listening and is either not familiar with Moore's work or, or is thinking, like, should I read it, should I not? Like, my big argument is that every one of his books, with maybe one exception, is a book that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't read Lost Girls. Uh, it's just, it's gross. Don't read it. Um, but, I mean, the vast majority of his works are just about love, right? Like, they're about... and and in some roundabout way, like you said, it's not always direct, it's not always clear, but you can feel it if you're attentive. You know, there's that, there's a panel in Watchmen, like, as the monster is being teleported into New York, and Manhattan is just exploding, right? Like, this enormous wave of death. And throughout the comic, not to go too into it, but there's uh, a newspaper, there's there's a, a guy who sells newspapers and, and comics and shit, and he has a newsstand, and then there's this little boy, or young man, who is sitting there reading a comic, and they kind of banter throughout the book, and you don't really... There's, you know, there's no, like, direct plot importance to this. But there's a panel, as, you know, the the light is, is coming, they're going to die, and they embrace, right, as they're obliterated. And I think that that is, like... I mean, I have chills thinking about it. Like, it's so important to me. But I think that that's, like, the at the core of Moore's work, it's, like, these little interactions, these little things that you take for granted, that you overlook, are, from the right perspective, the most important things that are happening to you at a given time. Um, which, now that I say that, is kind of reminds me of, like, David Foster Wallace a little bit, um, who's, you know, this a lot to say about him but but that's something that i think in his work works you know it, it's it's clear too you know like you if you're bored if you're not observant if you're not paying attention or you're taking things for granted you're gonna miss the things that matter um yeah and Moore's work is a great way to tap into that yeah i never get the sense that he's ever really losing touch with humanity in his works and there are certainly other authors that I do get that sense. So, pension for sure. I mean, yeah, there are times like, wait, are you saying pension does or doesn't lose touch with? Doesn't I would say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, only in Gravity's Rainbow am I like at times like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but. That's probably more about my limitations as a reader than <laughs> yeah. Like every other book he wrote is he's quite humanistic, so I completely agree with you. Yeah, those last like fifty pages. Not to go on a Gravity's Rainbow tangent. That's another podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. yeah, the last fifty pages or so is really like I'm like sure, man. Like all right, okay, all right. There's rockets, and you're talking also about you know gods and mountains and you know some sex shit whatever it's <laughs> i'll follow you i'll follow you into the breach brother <laughs> can i just say um just as a side note 
I went to Washington DC, I think, uh, I think it was over the summer. I think I told you just a little bit about it. I posted a little bit on Twitter about it. And we, my wife and I, we went to the Udvar Hazy Museum and they have, you know, all of these airplanes and jet planes and just the history of aviation and, you know, some, uh, space, <laughs> some, some, some moon stuff, but mm-hmm. they had this whole room near the moon, like near the, uh, I guess, uh, astronaut stuff. And they had all of these rockets, including like some of the rockets, like some of the V1, V2 type stuff. And like, I don't give a shit about airplanes. I don't, <laughs> I don't really care about space travel either, but I was just like completely fascinated by these rockets. And like, I was just like, oh, I get it. I could, I could, I could be a rocket guy. I could yeah. Read about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I man, it's my my buddy was over last night, and uh, he's you know obsessed with nuclear technology. And I, I made the mistake of asking him how a submarine can fire a missile underwater, um, and it is endlessly fascinating man like i mean the they cram warheads into that and then i mean it, i won't go into the weeds but it, suffice to say yeah rockets are super cool um and pynchon's obsession with them and gravity's rainbow is totally warranted i mean just that you can you you know you don't hear it until after you're dead is yeah. such an eerie like you know and to think i mean speaking of london you know that was the reality that millions of people were living with every single day was like, um, am I going to die and not hear it coming? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's crazy. If you view them almost on a continuum with like guns, because like certain guns, you won't, if, if you get shot, you won't hear it before you're dead. Yeah. Like it, like it's so crazy. Cause like, I guess I'm betraying my like, proclivities towards magical thinking because like (laughs) i mean obviously there's jack parsons with his whole you know he was a crucial uh pioneer in rocketry and there's so much going on with like you know gravity's rainbow with rockets and it's like it's both like satanic technology but it's also like done a lot for humanity like it's so complex yeah yeah i mean I think that that's like, man, this is going to become Gravity's Rainbow, the podcast. But, uh, I mean... <laughs> well, no, because, you know, Moore wrote that uh, short piece about Jack Parsons. Yeah, so I guess it's- yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, the tension between liberation and, uh, you know, confinement, right? Like, and with mm-hmm. the V2 or with any rocket escaping the bounds of gravity escaping you know the terrestrial and and making that leap but then also coming back is you know again it's one of those things where we take it for granted right like airplanes go up in the sky millions of times a day not a big deal but it's also really really weird (laughs) i know it's so crazy like what was what was the piece that he wrote it was for uh Alan Moore wrote like a, was it a series of short stories? Was it Brighter Than You Think? Brighter Than You Think, yeah. Was that, was that the name of the work or was that the short story? So that was the, that was the, it, so from what I remember, 
he wrote the story when he was still with DC and they didn't want to publish it due to its content. It was called Brighter Than You Think. And then it, it was bound with like 11 other unpublished short works of Moore's in a volume called Brighter Than You Think. Um, and it's the last story in there, yeah. Yeah, and he basically tells a pretty condensed... It's almost like the length of one single comic, like one volume. And he just tells the story of uh, Jack Parsons. <laughs> and... Like for any of my listeners, I, I imagine a lot of them are familiar with the, who Jack Parsons was, but he was basically just a guy in California who got into high ceremonial magic and rocketry at the same time and did groundbreaking work in both and then died in a mysterious fiery explosion <laughs> in like the 1950s. Yeah. Or, six, or maybe early 60s. I don't know. I remember reading about him and like. I could be wrong, but I feel like I remember reading that he was, like, as a teenager, talking on the phone with, like, Nazi rocket scientists, or, like, proto-Nazi, like, like you know, I mean, they were Nazis, but, like, before the Third Reich, what it was, was what it was. Um, yeah, just this, this kid who was, like, essentially self-taught, and... A, like a you know a virtuoso with like building rockets and then yeah also um he did the babylon workings um which was really important you know um <laughs> yeah uh so that's something to check out it's hard to find but um it's it's worth looking into yeah i read a biography of his which that could be a whole episode but like it's not exactly like new ground. Like a lot of people have looked at Jack Parsons, but like I read the biography and that was the first time I had even heard of John D uh, <laughs> was in a footnote to sex and rockets. And yeah, like Jack Parsons was doing rituals with L Ron Hubbard, mm -hmm. like <laughs> just the craziest stuff who I got Every time he comes up, I got a plug that he was in a polycule with uh, the guy who wrote Starship Troopers. <laughs> this is one of my favorite little historical tidbits. That's right. Um, <laughs> Don't do polyamory or you'll explode in a fiery rocketry accident. Yeah, that's a, that's a program to chill lesson for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, more, more was polyamorous or is, I don't know if he still is, but he, um, I think right before he got into magic, he and his wife opened up their marriage and then, uh, she ended up leaving him for the woman that they brought in as their third, which I think took a toll on him from what he said. Um, yeah, a song as old as time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I Alan Moore's to God. That's it. That's pretty much. That's blasphemous, but he's <laughs> tapped in. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't have that much respect for the genre. Just like how I concede that video games can be art, they just are not the overwhelming amount of the time. Right, right. And he is one of the few that I truly respect. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing, you know, 
he gives a lot of thought to the medium, right? Like, you know, people have tried to adapt his work and, and again, that is another conversation, but it, it just never works because what allows something like Watchmen to, to work so well is where you have the chapter where do, you're introduced to Dr. Manhattan's perspective where he's seeing all of time as a concurrent, you know, blend of, you know, simultaneous events. And it's it's that one panel, from one panel to the next, you jump years, you jump spaces, you jump completely that that makes that so profound, right? And that kind of thing has, you know, movies are built on cuts, right? Um, but, yeah. and co- I mean, comics are too in a sense, but I get the sense that most, you know, comic artists aren't thinking about that when they're writing or when they're illustrating. The the thing that I was reading was he was like, yeah, obviously comics are incredibly similar to cinema, but some people view the limitation of comics as just like film that doesn't move. And he was like, that makes sense to a point. But the thing that sets like comics apart is how much you can put into a simil- into a single image. Mm-hmm. And how rich those images can be and how everything can be perfectly composed to a greater degree probably than cinema can usually achieve. And like, yeah, he's completely right on just the medium differences, basically. Yeah. And I mean, if you read, you know, I mean, there's there's instances in Watchmen where if you you might miss a detail in the background that becomes extremely important later or I mean, one thing that stood out to me in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is, like, he doesn't directly say that, like, the the forces that are overseeing the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen are Masonic, but, like, there's a couple panels where, like, their train comes in and there's uh, uh, the... Is it a compass that's often a, a Freemasonic symbol? Um, there's the... Uh, the the uh, right angle ruler and then there's usually the what's the other one yeah yeah i mean yeah there's like also a compass too i think yeah yeah and and that's on the train that's coming that's coming from the intelligence service to pick up the league of extraordinary gentlemen and like it's a small thing right like it's not a big deal but Mm -hmm. that sort i mean that sort of thing really can enrich your reading and can let you see the layers right and and it also makes in the same way that, you know, as we've established, it is not only rewarding but necessary to read history, right, as a text to be deciphered, but more takes that philosophy and puts it into his works, right? Like a casual reading of anything that he's written is going to be a lot less satisfying and a lot less insightful than if you're taking seriously everything that's included in the image and the things that aren't. Um, yeah. yeah. And the thing too is like, I don't know if like, I'm sure a lot of my listeners would agree. Like there's probably a thing with like, when I was like an adolescent, like I was way into like alternative histories Mm -hmm. as a concept, just as like a, thought experiment and just like different works that explored those ideas. And like I became 
maybe not quite disillusioned with the concept just like more like real history is more interesting than like these you know like fake little story alternate histories that people come up with but i've found that i am still interested in things that are basically doing alternate history on things that are doing alternate histories on like a much higher sophisticated level like I'm talking like Pynchon and Alan Moore, right? Yeah. Because like with From Hell, he's doing Jack the Ripper and he's basically creating a fictional story. Mm-hmm. Like he's taking several theories and kind of blending them together. And I'm almost certain that like, <laughs> like it didn't happen the way the graphic novel depicts, right? Or right. the comic depicts. But nonetheless like through basically creating i guess what you would call an alternate history he comes to something much more interesting than like just like creating an alternate history where you just come up with something you know with and if you're not like extremely grounded in like the facts and the history like it's just going to be not as interesting as real life you know yeah absolutely well i mean it's one of the things that i observed when I was reading Brought to Light again, um, was in the opening pages, right? So, I mean, the, the quick premise is that, like, the narrator is speaking to you as the reader, and you come off of a boat in the harbor in New York, and you you kind of walk through this bizarre, almost like an alternate history, but not, um, and you wind up in a bar, and you're talking to this bald eagle that's, you know, yeah. drunk as shit and is t- talking to you about uh, the CIA, right? But through that whole narration, before you wind up in the bar, he's talking about a world within a world, a country within a country, right? Which is just another way of talking about the deep state, right? Like he's using, you know, this kind of language to suggest that, like, the history that we know is itself an alternate history or that there, or maybe rather that an alternate history that's truer than the one that we know exists. And that, you know, as the history is limited, we're not ever going like the MK files that were burned. We're never going to see them. Right. Whatever James Jesus Angleton took out of, you know, was in his safe and is now gone. We're never getting that. But our job is to, work with what we have to render that alternate history because again it's it's spiritually going to be more true just like from hell is probably spiritually more true to what actually happened than you know it is factually true you know i'm not sure how much that denotation even matters yeah and like i think that it's also a much blurrier line between doing real history and like assembling like real historians assemble narratives and discard and Mm -hmm. pick up pieces of information in a creative manner like this is not quite as separate it's far more permeable than i think people realize yeah absolutely and it's you know there's there's an art to to it you know there's an art to finding what is necessary and what's not um and you know with varying degrees of truth too, you know, like what can you include 
in your narrative without rendering it, you know, incredible and versus what's important enough that like, even though it might throw it into jeopardy, it still needs to be there. Um, you know, these are questions Moore is asking, I think maybe not explicitly, but implicitly in a lot of his work. Absolutely. I like your shirt, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. This my wife got this for me. It's uh, my favorite shirt. It, for the folks at home, it says uh, "Workers of the World Unite." Um, but um, yeah, I don't really. I, don't, I mean, I can look. We kind of touched on everything that I had written down. Um, the only thing I wanted to mention is that we haven't even talked about his novels, which now there's yeah. two. Um, I there's. Voice of the Flame or Voice of the Fire, I forget which, but um, that one's supposed to be good. And then he wrote Jerusalem, which is like a, an eleven hundred page behemoth. Um, I've yeah. I made it through like a quarter of it before I had to. I lost steam because you know we just had our second kid. Like it's great though, um, and you know talking about you know really working through the consequences of his beliefs regarding like the fourth dimension and, and all that it's it's something else for sure yeah. like from hell rereading it has like made me pretty sure that i'm going to read jerusalem at some point it might be years from now <laughs> i'm pretty sure i want to uh interestingly though his first book i saw in an interview i haven't read it that he said that it is it was much like From Hell in the sense that it was very hard for him to like do that research and get into that mind space. I guess it's even darker than From Hell is what he said. Yeah, I've seen the same like, thing. Um, it's, I mean, that one is supposed to be really dark. I can say like, you know, if you're going to tackle Neonomicon and Providence it's about as dark as it gets. Um, and, you know, I don't really believe in trigger warnings, but trigger warning, like it's, it's rough. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he really doesn't shy away from that, which I think, I mean, it, again, in this roundabout way is almost a humanist thing, right? Like you can't, yeah. y- you know, if you shy away, if you pull punches, you're not, you're doing a disservice to, you know, the people who live that shit and, and, you know, the suffering. It's the same thing as when you're reading about any of the, the, the CIA's shenanigans or whatever, and it starts to just be either numbers or, you know, cold facts. And it's like, nope, like this is something that hurts, like lives are ruined or destroyed and more is committed to not letting you forget that. Yeah, like, when you, just because I, like, From Hell's most fresh in my mind, like, only, like, five people die in the novel. Mm -hmm. I know that's not, I mean, in the comic. And, like, that sounds like a small amount, but, like, when you look at something like just one country, like El Salvador, and, like, some of the shit that went down because of Iran-Contra or, you know, just the death squads, you get that times, like, a thousand, mm-hmm. you know, like, or like, you just like, 
you really realize like <laughs> I, reading Ellen Moore helps you put in perspective like how much better we should be mm-hmm. by showing how bad things are. At the same time, there is a pretty fair critique of certain elements that I I would assume we're not probably the best equipped to tackle. Yeah. So I'll just note it and move on, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I think I want to say just, you know, we made an intentional decision. You know, there's people have a fair critique and, you know, if you want to, you know, I'm not speaking for Jimmy, but if you want to like DM me on Twitter or whatever and tell me I'm a fucking idiot, you know, <laughs> whatever. I don't care. I mean, I care, yeah. but you know, I, I, I welcome that because yeah, he's, yeah. I certainly, yeah, have a, uh, mixed feelings on portraying, you know, just sexual assault, things of this nature. So I am not, you know, against critiquing that at the same time, but I will say on a slightly more fun note, oh, well, I would... I okay. So <laughs> in From Hell, as a reminder, the the murders are taking place t- basically to silence women who know about the royal bastard, right? Mm-hmm. Um and who were trying to blackmail basically to get money. And so the point of the murders was to cover that up. But Dr. Gull, of course, went on and basically did it as a ritual to, you know, fight against the forces of femininity, the moon, you know, patriarchy, I guess you could say. He pretty explicitly frames it in those terms. But when he is called to account to Queen Victoria, because she's, you know, like, what are you doing? This is supposed (laughs) to be relatively secret, and this is about as public as it gets. And so Dr. Gull, in talking to Queen Victoria, says, To certain enemies of Freemasonry, your majesty, the scourge of Illuminism has reached England via a recently founded order called the Golden Dawn. These demonstrations have kept it in check. And Queen Victoria is like, okay, I understand. That is fine. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like, okay. He's depicting the royal family as like, okay, we need to murder six people to protect any hints that there's a royal bastard, of which there's literally like so many royal bastards in the first place. They truly don't care about the average person. And then (laughs) he's Ellen Morris choosing to depict Queen Victoria as being like, oh yeah, of course we have to fight the Illuminati. (laughs) Sure, go ahead. Do your ritual murder. It's a classic uh, interclass warfare, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning. Like, I don't think Alan Moore is always a super funny guy. But the, he definitely, like, you know, it's kind of like Kafka. Like, there's some stuff that is, will it'll get you chuckling for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would just, you know... Like, (laughs) it has just about as good of a critique of the royal family as you can find. I mean, obviously it's a work of fiction, but you can tell (laughs) what he thinks of the royal family. It's incredibly biting. Yeah. Um, I mean, even the the images of Queen Victoria, I mean, you know, she... I don't think... 
does she ever leave her throne? In like, I think every time she's depicted, she's sitting the entire time. She's yeah. just sitting, like lazy, fat, like just like, <laughs> like dis- Ex- exactly. But she looks just like the photo. Oh yeah, uh, exactly. Like the photo. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a uh, he's not fond of them, which is just you know one more reason to love the man. Um, exactly. Yeah, he also. I will say that. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say he he does a couple times explicitly make reference to like burgeoning socialism um, yeah. as I think a force for good. I mean, he's famously an anarchist. Um, there's the God is stupid fucking shit with the Extinction Rebellion. This is like yeah. a which. Like, we can chalk that one right up to Alan Moore, sus or not. We were contemplating <laughs> having an ongoing tally and adding it up at the end. We didn't do it, but, like, that is certainly on the uh, op side of things. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, and he, in interviews, you know, he talks about doctrinaire Marxism as being you know, you know, too ideological, too rigid. Um, but I I do think at least in his works, you know, he's definitely doesn't come across as one of those anarchists who's like, you know, we got to purge the Marxists. Like, I think he's, he sees a lot of common ground and, um, you know, sees that as a hope for the future um maybe i'm being too generous and showing my own proclivities but no i mean i think he's certainly viewing probably correctly that like dr goal and the different freemasons and the royal family were all basically lumping socialism in with feminism lumping that in with like basic they like they were calling it evil on the flip side i would call freemasonry and the royal family evil so like he does basically cast them as opposing forces right exactly and then if you correctly read it and you read goal as being this arch villain then the implication is that well those fighting against that are good and in this case it's you know socialist revolutions there's like a little there's a little throwaway like meeting of some marxists in like a second story and there's like a picture of marx on the wall that's like very carefully rendered um and yeah it's that stuff rocks for sure (laughs) i think it's i think it's depicted contrasting with dr gull basically murdering a woman Mm -hmm. and i think there's like an implication there of contrasting worldviews basically which is not to say that he was giving a full-throated endorsement of Marxism, per se. Uh, the psychic uh, is a... Because the the rest of the novel is a detective and a psychic basically solving the crime, mm-hmm. the crimes. And the psychic is depicted as a Fabian socialist, which was pretty much one of the dominant you know forms of socialism in England at the time and now even. And they poke some fun, but also depict it as at least better than these murdering Freemason <laughs> royals running everything. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, I mean, just I'm just thinking of this now, but, like, that little meeting of the Marxists, uh, 
I don't think there's really another instance of like organic community shown in the novel aside from I mean there's the women right like mm-hmm. and they have their own yeah, community they have one. but past that you don't really see people like freely gathering and and around something um or the freemasons I would say well as an extension of the prostitutes community there's also the depiction of just the working class community in bars. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. Together, sort of part and parcel. And then there's, he also depicts, not necessarily in a good way, the um, the mass media spectacle mm-hmm. where basically the people are already visiting the site of some of the murderers and like taking pictures and things. He's, you know... Not necessarily condemning, but not necessarily endorsing that as sort of a bloody, you know, spectacle. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I think we should talk about, too, like, and I think this is one of the more important takeaways from from Hell is, like, there's, I think I mentioned earlier, a chapter in which, not maybe not all of it, but most of it is devoted to, as the Ripper killings are, are becoming more and more of a sensation and people are getting involved with the media side of things. People were writing fake letters, right to, to the newspaper. And I think Moore does a really, really good job in that chapter of showing, you know, I mean, what's the, if you're like anti-men, not a misogynist, but misandrist, uh, miss misandrist. Yeah. So I, I don't think that he comes like he's, comes across as a misandrist or anything, but he does show men from all walks of life, young, old. One of them, I think, is like a religious man, like he's a, a, a pastor or a chaplain or something. And they're all getting all worked up and engaged in writing these fake letters as if they're the killer, right? And yeah. showing, you know, that there is a proclivity and a, a capacity in maybe not every man, but in lots of them to you know, work through these sublimated issues that they have vicariously through violence and the media giving them an outlet to do that. Um, Which, I mean, you mentioned video games earlier. Like, (laughs) there's one thing video games are good for. It's giving young men an opportunity to pretend to kill people. Like, yeah. yeah. No, I I would say that From Hell probably has a very serious critique of the patriarchy mm-hmm. and of just uh, masculinity to a ex- lesser extent. Yeah, for sure. No, that was an interesting one where it's sort of like, okay, like he, I don't, I don't think Moore is a enemy to the common man, but I don't think he has that many illusions about how bad people can be either. Yeah. And how easy, I mean, like it, 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 it's shown to be this thing that's just right. It's ready. Right. Like, you know, he's a humanist, but he also, I think, understands that, you know, there's a lot of, like, psychic damage that comes along with being working class, you know, being subjected to these different media apparatuses and shit. Um, and you're given an outlet for that, and it's just, like, you know, off to the races. Yeah, for sure. And then I will say... Uh, my version of From Hell had this. I think yours did too. They basically the standalone work at the end of From Hell, where he basically 
depicts in comic form the history of Ripperology. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, dance of the gold catchers. I found, yes, and I found that to be just as interesting almost as From Hell, where he goes through the different theories, uh, what they say about their time and place. He says quite explicitly that like exploring Jack the Ripper is not truly about the events, which we can't truly know the truth of, but they're more about us, the way our minds play, the way we engage with these ideas, and what our fears about society are. Because at different points, Jack the Ripper was a lunatic, a royal, evil royal, a Freemason, a some sort of Illuminati thing. Like, there's been all these different theories of who Jack the Ripper was. You know, and he also explores and doesn't state directly why he chose the two theories that he picked for who Jack the Ripper was, which was the magical reading and the reading that the whole thing was to cover up a royal bastard. And he interestingly points out that both, like, not so much the magical one, because that is sort of floating above everything, but the theory that the Ripper killings were to cover up these prostitutes who were trying to blackmail about a royal bastard was particularly, uh, what's the word, discredited. <laughs> the only theory that's more discredited is that it was a royal family member that <laughs> <laughs> And I think that his conspiracy theory mind was, you know, like a little Geiger ticking when he saw that like one theory in particular was very discredited and he's like well that's probably the right reading. <laughs> yeah yeah that um you know it, he he in that comic he really puts into practice like the things that again he's implicitly talking about he shows you the process of performing historical research right in comic form, not even in prose. It's yeah. it, it's it's a comic. It's a good comic with beautiful art, but it it's also it's a teaching tool, right? To walk you mm. through, like you know, how to 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 read history and how to diagnose it, so that you can like. If it reminded me, like, and this is not to say that everyone needs to do this for every historical event, because nothing's more inconsequential technically than. <laughs> who Jack the Ripper really was like there's nothing more irrelevant if we're being honest except maybe on a spiritual level or something but like (laughs) it reminds me of like he clearly read just about every Jack the Ripper novel not novel history book Mm -hmm. and basically it reminds me of when I was getting into the JFK yes yes right Mm -hmm. and like all the different theories, which books cover which history, which books are attacked for what reasons, it's essentially the same process. Absolutely. And it's the same with, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a, a pratfall. I've posted about it a little bit, but like, it's really easy to get bogged down in like, well, who was the person that pulled the trigger that blew Kennedy's yeah. brains out? And it's like, I'm not saying that's not an important question. But you can totally miss the forest for the trees if you get bogged yes. down in the, that detail. Yes. Because at the end of the day, it's that's not like it doesn't matter that much, you know. It, what matters is that the CIA fucking killed the president. Like, 
you know that's that's the takeaway you need to have there right um Mm -hmm. but if you're if you're really especially i think people who are more detail obsessed which like i'm not i mean i have a hard enough time remembering people's names after i've read them in a book like the the opposite side sucks but yeah you know Mm -hmm. people who are real detail obsessed can start to you know know everything but what matters about any given historical event. yeah no i completely agree because it's like it doesn't matter if it was this cuban guy or this french mercenary or you know this bank robber like it's <laughs> that it was a certain agency for certain reasons and the same thing with jack the ripper like i'm not particularly emotionally invested in it being dr gull just because i read from hell and i really liked it and i'm not I don't think that like the ritual stuff happened the way from hell depicted. I think maybe things like that might have set the tone for the 20th century, like the novel, like the comic says, but like at the end of the day, there was clearly probably something of a conspiracy covering it up. Mm -hmm. It was never really solved. There's hints that, they tried to make a fall guy, you know, there's all kinds of very strange stuff, somewhat similar to the JFK assassination. And from hell, at least shines a light on the fact that the story is much more complicated than any one history book shows. Right. And I mean, I think too, like my big takeaway from, from hell, like the thing that the one thing that I like think about is how, I mean, there's like Maybe the most striking scene, or one of there's a lot of them, but is where mm-hmm. if it's one of the murders, but he like all of a sudden is inside a skyscraper and he sees yeah. people from the 20th century, like the, you know, it's probably the 70s or 80s or not, like you know, um, yeah, and you know, to me, again, like I agree, I, I don't give a shit if uh, Dr. Gold is the killer, it doesn't matter to me, I love the book and. The conspiracy stuff matters to a degree, too. You know, like, did the royal family orchestrate this? Whatever. But what really matters is that, like, the social conditions of 1870s, 1880s England are on the exact same timeline. And if you follow, if you were to push that domino, you land now, right? And, like, that's what matters with all this stuff is, like, it, you know, the ripples are still all around us today. Um, Yeah. And From Hell is, is, it puts that in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Like, to quote Dr. Gull when he's in that vision where he sees people in the future, he says to them, he realizes, like, how distracted and depressed they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think he would say degenerate, but also <laughs> spiritually. And like, obviously he's like a insane murderer. Right. So keep that in mind. But he says, speaking to them, even though he knows they can't hear, he says, your days were born in blood and fires, whereof in you, I may not see the meanest spark. Your past is pain and iron. Know yourselves. And, like, I don't, like, have anything to add to that. Like, know yourself. Like, learn about history. Like, (laughs) Victorian England explains so much of modern conditions. Like, sure, there's, like, shorter ways than reading a 600-page comic book. But, like, 
you will get so much out of reading Alan Moore's work and especially from hell and certainly the others like the more you learn and know like I know I sound like fucking reading rainbow but like, <laughs> like if there's one thing that I want listeners to do it's to read and like be engaged with history like that's what I love so I just I'm always trying to share that and like Alan Moore through the words of Jack the Ripper that's what he's saying and like I agree with that yeah as deranged as that sounds no I mean it, it's it's true that's I think that that's I think what you want for the listeners what I want for your listeners uh, because I'm one of them yeah. uh, is also what Alan Moore wants which is just and then I mean you know if I'm being generous to him for the magical stuff that mm-hmm. he's he's doing that for himself and I think that he sees that as a way for people to come to know themselves because if if you take all of his stuff seriously if God is truly only exists in your head then the only place to get to know God is to know yourself um yeah and yeah I think that that's a a pretty you know maybe not the only thing you should do but definitely one of them yeah no he sees the spark of divinity in everyone mm-hmm. and he realizes that people are uh, living far below their means and capacity somewhat due to social conditions but also you know by choice and I think that at the end of the day just like from hell one of the characters says <clears throat> I think it's one of the detectives who says that we are all living in the house that Jack built mm-hmm. yep like so that's where we're stuck we're stuck in this this century now we're at a new century that basically we're living with the worlds that Jack the Ripper made and we have to try to break out of it and how we do that is to learn about history so yeah I agree I think that's a good place to end it honestly <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself I think so well let's see here so um to wrap up is there like do you have anything you want to plug um uh i do i will uh follow me on twitter um it's again it's at pussy underscore 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 teeth um (laughs) and uh i do i I have a little curated list of alan moore's works because he has written a lot um we kind of walked through the big ones but i mean he's I think he did some stuff with Green Lantern. He's done a lot of one-offs. He's got some some smaller series that are uh, the ones called like Top Ten. There's a, a bunch of them, but um, I haven't read all of them. I've read a lot, and uh, I just want to make a suggestion, a gentle suggestion. Um, I would highly recommend Marvel Man. Uh, Swamp Thing, like I said, is my personal favorite. I think that his humanism comes through most clearly there. It's it's just a love story. It's a love story. Um, and it's beautiful. Um, I don't really think the killing joke is good. I think that's skippable. Um, brought to light is worth reading if you can find it. It's short. It's also really hard to find and the physical copies are expensive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Watchmen, obviously, um, it's almost too good. Like it's, it's, it's it's kind of hard to get your head around. Watchmen, watch. 
Watchmen is a must read, I'd agree. And like, there never should have been any more cape shit after Watchmen. That should have been the end. Yeah. And the fact that instead it only got more popular shows how decadent and depraved our culture is. <laughs> yeah, and also how badly we misunderstood that novel or that that comic. I mean, yeah. it's it's straight up like the oh man, the main the the first superhero in the comic like the of all of all time is purported to be, like, a member of the KKK. Like, he runs around in a fucking pointed hood with a noose around his neck. Like, yeah. that's what Alan Moore thinks... It's, it's vigilante justice. Yeah. That's what vigilante justice is in the real world. Yeah, and that's what Alan Moore thinks superheroes are. And instead, people were like, man, this shit is sick. Let's make more of these. Let's make Marvel movies, baby. Come on. Um, you've, you've, probably, you've probably seen the uh, quote where he gets sometimes gets approached at like comic-con or whatever someone's like i'm literally rorschach and he's like get the fuck away from me. <laughs> i want to meet rorschach in real life yeah yeah and i mean how many people look at rorschach like man that guy is so cool like that guy talking about like all these like these what's the shit he says about like dirty people living in the sewers that need to be like cleansed like he sounds like a fucking yeah. fascist he's a fascist like yeah. Um, but yeah, Watchmen is definitely a must must read. Um, mm-hmm. From Hell, obviously, Lost Girls. Don't read it. That one is big on the sus radar, in my opinion. Like, if we're gonna go back to a tally, yeah, that we didn't even deal with that. Nor do I know how to. Yeah, I don't want to. Just it's it's not uh, good. It's it's best the best case scenario. It's a misstep, like a really pretty severe misstep, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and then he wrote, uh, you know, obviously from hell you should read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's pretty good. Um, and then Neonomicon and Providence, um, I think are really important, but again, uh, they're tough. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll like maybe I don't know next year or something but like i'm pretty sure you'll be back on and we'll talk about that that'll be really good yeah i I would really be excited to do that but um yeah that's my that's my list of plugs oh we didn't really talk about v for vendetta that much it's fine yeah i mean it's good like i think that people somehow keep misinterpreting it i think that could be technically oh interesting episode i'm just not particularly interested in relitigating it right now yeah just like how i don't care to talk about 1984 because it's so that's a whole other thing like yeah yeah well i I think maybe maybe another day yeah and i mean dystopian well just i mean i don't know i think it's really really hard now to make dystopian fiction compelling because it's been done so much I suspect that if I if I'd read V for Vendetta back when it was published, it would have been a lot more interesting. But like, I don't know about you. I saw the movie well before I read the comic, and I read nineteen eighty four before I read it, and I, I read a bunch of things in the same vein. And so by the time you get to it, it's like, you know, it feels kind of well trod. It's done well, but it's, it's more in- yeah. Like it's more interesting to me as a critique of like Thatcherite England, mm-hmm. but like. I think that probably most people who read it don't know that much about Thatcherite England. And, like, I don't know. Like, there's so much to it. But I I did want to just note, 
because um, we mentioned it uh, in a conversation at some point. <laughs> the irony for someone who's so in tune with symbols, uh-huh. the irony of picking both a reactionary Catholic and one who failed. I think that if I were, if I turned my suspicion radar all the way up to like a hundred percent. I would think that that's like an intentional thing to pick. (laughs) (laughs) If, if Alan Moore is a bad actor, which I don't think picking a picking for his symbol, the guy who failed to blow up parliament is like an intentional choice, right? Absolutely. And then, you know, of course, uh, uh, anonymous adopting the guy Fox mask, you know, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Wee wee Questionable wee, yeah, for sure. Um, but that's a conversation for another day, I suppose. But yeah, I'd say so. Um, but yeah, read Alan Moore. Uh, keep listening to Program to Chill. Um, and uh, yeah, stay vigilant. Stay vigilant. That's right. One saucy Jack, you're a haughty one. Saucy Jack, when the street lamps gaslight flickers and fails, then you see the last light glinting off the entrails. Oh, naughty, 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 you're a sneaky one. A saucy Jack, you're a cheeky one. Saucy Jack, first the horse says, Go now, fancy a squeeze. You will be shoved down the hole to Hades. Oh, naughty, naughty, naughty. The scourge of London Jack, not a foolish one. Saucy Jack, blow the peelers, track you early and late. Slipping out the back, you counter with a checkmate. Oh, naughty, 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 naughty. <laughs> <laughs>